Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. This is RTE Radio 1 and we continue our Summer of Dubliners. Tonight we broadcast the RTE Players' dramatisation of another two stories from James Joyce's classic collection, After the Race and Counterparts. Jimmy Doyle widens his social set while away at university, undoubtedly at the expense of fulfilling his academic potential. But as he tries to fit in with his new friends, will it dawn on him that wealth can shroud and cloud the true value of camaraderie and friendship? This is After the Race by James Joyce. The cars came scudding in towards Dublin, running evenly like pellets in the groove of the Nace Road. At the crest of the hill at Inchicore, Sightseers had gathered in clumps to watch the cars careering homeward, and through this channel of poverty and inaction, the continent sped its wealth and industry. Now and again, the clumps of people raised the cheer of the gratefully oppressed. Their sympathy, however, was for the blue cars, the cars of their friends, the French. The French, moreover, were virtual victors. Their team had finished solidly. They had been placed second and third, and the driver of the winning German car was reported a Belgian. Each blue car, therefore, received a double round of welcome as it topped the crest of the hill, and each cheer of welcome was acknowledged with smiles and nods by those in the car. In one of these trimly built cars was a party of four young men whose spirits seemed to be at present well above the level of successful gallicism. In fact, these four young men were almost hilarious. They were Charles Seguin, the owner of the car, André Riviere, a young electrician of Canadian birth, a huge Hungarian named Vilona, and a neatly groomed young man named Doyle. Seguin was in good humour because he had unexpectedly received some orders in advance. He was about to start a motor establishment in Paris, and Riviere was in good humour because he was to be appointed manager of the establishment. These two young men, who were cousins, were also in good humour because of the success of the French cars. Villona was in good humour because he had had a very satisfactory luncheon, and besides, he was an optimist by nature. The fourth member of the party, however, was too excited to be genuinely happy. He was about 26 years of age, with a soft, light brown moustache and rather innocent-looking grey eyes. His father, who had begun life as an advanced nationalist, had modified his views early. He had made his money as a butcher in Kingstown, and by opening shops in Dublin and in the suburbs, he had made his money many times over. He had also been fortunate enough to secure some of the police contracts, and in the end, he had become rich enough to be alluded to in the Dublin newspapers as a merchant prince. He had sent his son to England to be educated in a big Catholic college, and afterwards sent him to Dublin University to study law. Jimmy did not study very earnestly and took to bad courses for a while. He had money and he was popular and he divided his time curiously between musical and motoring circles. Then he had been sent for a term to Cambridge to see a little life. His father, remonstrative but covertly proud of the excess, had paid his bills and brought him home. It was at Cambridge that he had met Seguin 
They were not much more than acquaintances as yet, but Jimmy found great pleasure in the society of one who had seen so much of the world and was reputed to own some of the biggest hotels in France. Such a person, as his father agreed, was well worth knowing, even if he had not been the charming companion he was. Villona was entertaining also, a brilliant pianist, but unfortunately very poor. The car ran on merrily with its cargo of hilarious youth. The two cousins sat on the front seat. Jimmy and his Hungarian friend sat behind. Decidedly, Villona was in excellent spirits. He kept up a deep bass hum of melody for miles of the road. The Frenchmen flung their laughter and light words over their shoulders, and often Jimmy had to strain forward to catch the quick phrase. This was not altogether pleasant for him, as he had nearly always to make a deft guess at the meaning and shout back a suitable answer in the teeth of a high wind. Besides, Villona's humming would confuse anybody, the noise of the car too. Rapid motion through space elates one. So does notoriety, so does the possession of money. These were three good reasons for Jimmy's excitement. He had been seen by many of his friends that day in the company of these Continentals. At the control, Segoma had presented him to one of the French competitors, and in answer to his confused murmur of compliment, the swarthy face of the driver had disclosed a line of shining white teeth. It was pleasant after that honour to return to the profane world of spectators amid nudges and significant looks. Then, as to money, he really had a great sum under his control. Segoma perhaps would not think it a great sum, but Jimmy, who, in spite of temporary errors, was at heart the inheritor of solid instincts, knew well with what difficulty it had been got together. This knowledge had previously kept his bills within the limits of reasonable recklessness, and if he had been so conscious of the labour latent in money when there had been question merely of some freak of the higher intelligence, how much more so now when he was about to stake the greater part of his substance? It was a serious thing for him. Of course, the investment was a good one, and Segema had managed to give the impression that it was by a favour of friendship the might of Irish money was to be included in the capital of the concern. Jimmy had a respect for his father's shrewdness in business matters, and in this case, it had been his father who had first suggested the investment. Money to be made in the motor business. Pots of money. Moreover, Segema had the unmistakable air of wealth. Jimmy set out to translate into day's work that lordly car in which he sat. How smoothly it ran. In what style they had come careering along the country roads. The journey laid a magical finger on the genuine pulse of life and gallantly the machinery of human nerves strove to answer the bounding courses of the swift blue animal. They drove down Dame Street. The street was busy with unusual traffic, loud with the horns of motorists and the gongs of impatient tram drivers. Near the bank, Seguin drew up and Jimmy and his friend alighted. A little knot of people collected on the footpath to pay homage to the snorting motor. The party was to dine together that evening in Seguin's hotel, and meanwhile, Jimmy and his friend, who was staying with him, were to go home to dress. The car steered out slowly for Grafton Street, while the two young men pushed their way through the knot of gazers. They walked northward with a curious feeling of disappointment in the exercise, while the city hung its pale globes of light above them in a haze of summer evening.
In Jimmy's house, this dinner had been pronounced an occasion. A certain pride mingled with his parents' trepidation, a certain eagerness also to play fast and loose, for the names of great foreign cities have at least this virtue. Jimmy, too, looked very well when he was dressed, and as he stood in the hall giving a last equation to the bows of his dress tie, his father may have felt even commercially satisfied at having secured for his son qualities often unpurchasable. His father, therefore, was unusually friendly with Valona, and his manner expressed a real respect for foreign accomplishments. But this subtlety of his host was probably lost upon the Hungarian, who was beginning to have a sharp desire for his dinner. The dinner was excellent, exquisite. Seguin, Jimmy decided, had a very refined taste. The party was increased by a young Englishman named Routh, whom Jimmy had seen with Seguin at Cambridge. The young men supped in a snug room lit by electric candle lamps. They talked volubly and with little reserve. Jimmy, whose imagination was kindling, conceived the lively youth of the Frenchmen twined elegantly upon the firm framework of the Englishman's manner. A graceful image of his, he thought, and a just one. He admired the dexterity with which their host directed the conversation. The five young men had various tastes, and their tongues had been loosened. Bellona, with immense respect, began to discover to the mildly surprised Englishman the beauties of the English madrigal, deploring the loss of old instruments. Riviere, not wholly ingenuously, undertook to explain to Jimmy the triumph of the French mechanicians. The resonant voice of the Hungarian was about to prevail in ridicule of the spurious lutes of the romantic painters when Seguin shepherded his party into politics. Here was congenial ground for all. Jimmy, under generous influences, felt the buried zeal of his father wake to life within him. He aroused the torpid Routh at last. The room grew doubly hot, and Seguin's task grew harder each moment. There was even danger of personal spite. The alert host, at an opportunity, lifted his glass to humanity, and when the toast had been drunk, he threw open a window significantly. That night, the city wore the mask of a capital. The five young men strolled along Stephen's Green in a faint cloud of aromatic smoke. They talked loudly and gaily, and their cloaks dangled from their shoulders. The people made way for them. At the corner of Grafton Street, a short, fat man was putting two handsome ladies on a car in charge of another fat man. The car drove off, and the short, fat man caught sight of the party. Andre! It's Farley! A torrent of talk followed. Farley was an American. No one knew very well what the talk was about. Villona and Riviere were the noisiest, but all the men were excited. They got up on a car, squeezing themselves together amid much laughter. They drove by the crowd, blended now with the soft colours, to a music of merry bells. They took the train at Westland Row, and in a few seconds, as it seemed to Jimmy, they were walking out of Kingstown Station. The ticket collector saluted Jimmy. He was an old man. Fine night, sir! It was a serene summer night. The harbour lay like a darkened mirror at their feet. They proceeded towards it with linked arms, singing Cade Roussel in chorus, stamping their feet at every... They got into a rowboat at the slip and made out for the American's yacht. There was to be supper, music, cards. 
Bellona said with conviction, It is beautiful. There was a yacht piano in the cabin. Bellona played a waltz for Farley and Riviere, Farley acting as cavalier and Riviere as lady. Then an impromptu square dance. The men devising original figures. What merriment. Jimmy took his part with a will. This was seeing life at least. Then Farley got out of breath and cried, a man brought in a light supper, and the young men sat down to it for form's sake. They drank, however. It was bohemian. They drank Ireland, England, France, Hungary, the United States of America. Jimmy made a speech, a long speech. Villona saying, Here, here! Whenever there was a pause. There was a great clapping of hands when he sat down. It must have been a good speech. Farley clapped him on the back and laughed loudly. What jovial fellows... What good company they were. Cards. Cards. The table was cleared. Villona returned quietly to his piano and played voluntaries for them. The other men played game after game, flinging themselves boldly into the adventure. They drank the health of the Queen of Hearts and of the Queen of Diamonds. Jimmy felt obscurely the lack of an audience. The wit was flashing. Play ran very high and paper began to pass. Jimmy did not know exactly who was winning, but he knew that he was losing. But it was his own fault, for he frequently mistook his cards, and the other men had to calculate his IOUs for him. They were devils of fellows, but he wished they would stop. It was getting late. Someone gave the toast of the yacht, and then someone proposed one great game for a finish. The piano had stopped. Filona must have gone up on deck. It was a terrible game. They stopped just before the end of it to drink for luck. Jimmy understood that the game lay between Routh and Seguin. What excitement. Jimmy was excited too. He would lose, of course. How much had he written away? The men rose to their feet to play the last tricks, talking and gesticulating. Routh won. The cabin shook with the young men's cheering and the cards were bundled together. They began then to gather in what they had won. Farley and Jimmy were the heaviest losers. He knew that he would regret in the morning, but at present he was glad of the rest, glad of the dark stupor that would cover up his folly. He leaned his elbows on the table and rested his head between his hands, counting the beats of his temples. The cabin door opened, and he saw the Hungarian standing in a shaft of grey light. Daybreak, gentlemen. That was After the Race by James Joyce. Farley, the ticket collector, and other parts were played by members of the Radio Aaron Players. After the Race by James Joyce was narrated by Connor Farrington and the producer was William Stiles. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.
Farrington is a boorish alcoholic scrivener in a Dublin legal firm, more parched than parchment. As his working day descends further from bad to worse, he's desperate to get finished and get out for a good night's drinking. Down to his last penny, he still manages to secure funds. But the night doesn't turn out as expected. This is Counterparts by James Joyce. The bell rang furiously and when Miss Parker went to the tube, a furious voice called out in a piercing North of Ireland accent. Send Farrington here. Miss Parker returned to her machine, saying to a man who was writing at a desk. Mr. Elaine wants you upstairs. The man muttered, blast him, under his breath and pushed back his chair to stand up. When he stood up, he was tall and of great bulk. He had a hanging face, dark wine-coloured, with fair eyebrows and moustache. His eyes bulged forward slightly and the whites of them were dirty. He lifted up the counter and, passing by the clients, went out of the office with a heavy step. He went heavily upstairs until he came to the second landing, where a door bore a brass plate with the inscription, Mr. Alain. Here he halted, puffing with labour and vexation, and knocked. The shrill voice cried, Come in! The man entered Mr. Alain's room. Simultaneously, Mr. Alain, a little man wearing gold-rimmed glasses on a clean-shaven face, shot his head up over a pile of documents. The head itself was so pink and hairless that it seemed like a large egg reposing on the papers. Mr. Alain did not lose a moment. Farrington, what is the meaning of this? Why have I always to complain of you? May I ask you why you haven't made a copy of that contract between Bodley and Kerwin? I told you it must be ready by four o'clock. But Mr. Shelley said, sir. Mr. Shelley said, sir. Kindly attend to what I say and not to what Mr. Shelley says, sir. You have always some excuse or another for shirking work. Let me tell you that if the contract is not copied before this evening, I'll lay the matter before Mr. Crosby. Do you hear me now? Yes, sir. Do you hear me now? Aye. And another little matter. I might as well be talking to the wall as talking to you. Understand once for all that you get a half an hour for your lunch and not an hour and a half. How many courses do you want? I'd like to know. Do you mind me now? Yes, sir. Mr. Alain bent his head again upon his pile of papers. The man stared fixedly at the polished skull which directed the affairs of Crosby and Alain, gauging its fragility. A spasm of rage gripped his throat for a few moments and then passed, leaving after it a sharp sensation of thirst. The man recognised the sensation and felt that he must have a good night's drinking. The middle of the month was passed and if he could get the copy done in time, Mr Alain might give him an order on the cashier. He stood still, gazing fixedly at the head upon the pile of papers. Suddenly Mr Alain began to upset all the papers, searching for something. Then, as if he had been unaware of the man's presence till that moment, he shot up his head again, saying, Eh? Are you going to stand there all day? Upon my word, Farrington, you take things easy. Uh, I was waiting to see. Very good, you needn't wait to see. Go downstairs and do your work. The man walked heavily towards the door 
and as he went out of the room, he heard Mr. Elaine cry after him that if the contract was not copied by evening, Mr. Crosby would hear of the matter. He returned to his desk in the lower office and counted the sheets which remained to be copied. He took up his pen and dipped it in the ink, but he continued to stare stupidly at the last words he had written. In no case shall the said Bernard Bodley be. The evening was falling, and in a few minutes they would be lighting the gas. Then he could write. He felt that he must slake the thirst in his throat. He stood up from his desk and, lifting the counter as before, passed out of the office. As he was passing out, the chief clerk looked at him inquiringly. It's all right, Mr. Shelley, said the man, pointing with his finger to indicate the objective of his journey. The chief clerk glanced at the hat rack, but seeing the row complete, offered no remark. As soon as he was on the landing, the man pulled a shepherd's plaid cap out of his pocket, put it on his head and ran quickly down the rickety stairs. From the street door, he walked on furtively on the inner side of the path towards the corner and all at once dived into a doorway. He was now safe in the dark snug of O'Neill's shop and filling up the little window that looked into the bar with his inflamed face, the colour of dark wine or dark meat, he called out, uh, Here, Pat! Give us a GP like a good fella. The curate brought him a glass of plain porter. The man drank it at a gulp and asked for a caraway seed. He put his penny on the counter and, leaving the curate to grope for it in the gloom, retreated out of the snug as furtively as he had entered it. Darkness, accompanied by a thick fog, was gaining upon the dusk of February and the lamps in Eustace Street had been lit. The man went up by the houses until he reached the door of the office, wondering whether he could finish his copy in time. On the stairs, a moist, pungent odour of perfumes saluted his nose. Evidently, Miss Delacour had come while he was out in O'Neill's. He crammed his cap back again into his pocket and re-entered the office, assuming an air of absent-mindedness. Mr. Lalane has been calling for you, said the chief clerk severely. Where were you? The man glanced at the two clients who were standing at the counter as if to intimate that their presence prevented him from answering. As the clients were both male, the chief clerk allowed himself a laugh. <laughs> I know that game, he said. Five times in one day is a little bit... Well, you better look sharp and get a copy of our correspondence in the Delacour case for Mr. Elaine. This address, in the presence of the public his run upstairs and the porter he had gulped down so hastily confused the man, and as he sat down at his desk to get what was required, he realised how hopeless was the task of finishing his copy of the contract before half-past five. The dark, damp night was coming, and he longed to spend it in the bars, drinking with his friends amid the glare of gas and the clatter of glasses. He got out the Delacour correspondence and passed out of the office. He hoped Mr. Elaine would not discover that the last two letters were missing. The moist, pungent perfume lay all the way up to Mr. Elaine's room. Miss Delacour was a middle-aged woman of Jewish appearance. Mr. Elaine was said to be sweet on her or on her money. She came to the office often and stayed a long time when she came. She was sitting beside his desk now in an aroma of perfumes, smoothing the handle of her umbrella and nodding the great black feather in her hat. Mr. Elaine had swivelled his chair round to face her and thrown his right foot jauntily upon his left knee. 
The man put the correspondence on the desk and bowed respectfully, but neither Mr. Alleyne nor Miss Delacour took any notice of his bow. Mr. Alleyne tapped a finger on the correspondence and then flicked it towards him as if to say, that's all right, you can go. The man returned to the lower office and sat down again at his desk. He stared intently at the incomplete phrase, In no case shall the said Bernard Bodley be. And thought how strange it was that the last three words began with the same letter. The chief clerk began to hurry Miss Parker, saying she would never have the letters typed in time for post. The man listened to the clicking of the machine for a few minutes and then set to work to finish his copy. But his head was not clear and his mind wandered away to the glare and rattle of the public house. It was a night for hot punches. He struggled on with his copy, but when the clock struck five, he had still 14 pages to write. Blast it, he couldn't finish it in time. He longed to execrate aloud, to bring his fist down on something violently. He was so enraged that he wrote Bernard Bernard instead of Bernard Bodley and had to begin again on a clean sheet. He felt strong enough to clear out the whole office single-handed. His body ached to do something, to rush out and revel in violence. All the indignities of his life enraged him. Could he ask the cashier privately for an advance? No, the cashier was no good, no damn good. He wouldn't give an advance. He knew where he would meet the boys, Leonard and O'Halloran and Nosey Flynn, the barometer of his emotional nature was set for a spell of riot. His imagination had so abstracted him that his name was called twice before he answered. Mr. Elaine and Miss Delacour were standing outside the counter and all the clerks had turned round in anticipation of something. The man got up from his desk. Mr. Elaine began a tirade of abuse, saying that two letters were missing. The man answered that he knew nothing about them that he had made a faithful copy. The tirade continued. It was so bitter and violent that the man could hardly restrain his fist from descending upon the head of the mannequin before him. I know nothing about any other two letters, he said stupidly. You know nothing. Of course you know nothing, said Mr. Alleyne. Tell me, he added, glancing first for approval to the lady beside him. Do you take me for a fool? Do you think me a nutter? Fool! The man glanced from the lady's face to the little egg-shaped head and back again, and almost before he was aware of it, his tongue had found a felicitous moment. I don't think, sir, he said, that that's a fair question to put to me. There was a pause in the very breathing of the clerks. Everyone was astounded, the author of the witticism no less than his neighbours, and Miss Delacour, who was a stout, amiable person, began to smile broadly. Mr. Alleyne flushed to the hue of a wild rose and his mouth twitched with a dwarf's passion. He shook his fist in the man's face till it seemed to vibrate like the knob of some electric machine. You impertinent ruffian! You impertinent ruffian! I'll make short work of you. Wait till you see. You'll apologise to me for your impertinence or you'll quit the office instanter. You'll quit this I'm telling you or you'll apologise to me. He stood in a doorway opposite the office, watching to see if the cashier would come out alone. All the clerks passed out, and finally the cashier came out with the chief clerk, 
It was no use trying to say a word to him when he was with the chief clerk. The man felt that his position was bad enough. He had been obliged to offer an abject apology to Mr. Elaine for his impertinence, but he knew what a hornet's nest the office would be for him. He could remember the way in which Mr. Elaine had hounded Little Peak out of the office in order to make room for his own nephew. He felt savage and thirsty and revengeful, annoyed with himself and with everyone else. Mr. Elaine would never give him an hour's rest. His life would be a hell to him. He had made a proper fool of himself this time. Could he not keep his tongue in his cheek? But they had never pulled together from the first, he and Mr. Elaine, ever since the day Mr. Elaine had overheard him mimicking his North of Ireland accent to amuse Higgins and Miss Parker. That had been the beginning of it. He might have tried Higgins for the money, but your Higgins never had anything for himself. A man with two establishments to keep up, of course he couldn't. He felt his great body again aching for the comfort of the public house. The fog had begun to chill him, and he wondered, could he touch Pat in O'Neill's? He could not touch him for more than a bob, and a bob was no use. Yet he must get money somewhere or other. He had spent his last penny for the GP, and soon it would be too late for getting money anywhere. Suddenly, as he was fingering his watch chain, he thought of Terry Kelly's pawn office in Fleet Street. That was the dart. Why didn't he think of it sooner? He went through the narrow alley of Temple Bar quickly, muttering to himself that they could all go to hell because he was going to have a good night of it. The clerk in Terry Kelly's said a crown, but the consigner held out for six shillings, and in the end the six shillings was allowed him, literally. He came out of the pawn office, joyfully making a little cylinder of the coins between his thumb and fingers. In Westmoreland Street, the footpaths were crowded with young men and women returning from business, and ragged urchins ran here and there, yelling out the names of the evening editions. The man passed through the crowd, looking on the spectacle generally with proud satisfaction, and staring masterfully at the office girls. His head was full of the noises of tram gongs and swishing trolleys, and his nose already sniffed the curling fumes of punch. As he walked on, he preconsidered the terms in which he would narrate the incident to the boys. So I just looked at him coolly, you know, and looked at her. And then I looked back at him again, taking my time, you know. I don't think that that's a fair question to put to me, says I. Nosy Flynn was sitting up in his usual corner of Davy Burns, and when he heard the story, he stood Farrington a half one, saying it was as smart a thing as ever he heard. Farrington stood a drink in his turn. After a while, O'Halloran and Paddy Leonard came in, and the story was repeated to them. O'Halloran stood Taylor's malt, hot all round, and told the story of the retort he had made to the chief clerk when he was in Callan's of Founsa Street. But as the retort was after the manner of the liberal shepherds in the Eclogues, he had to admit that it was not so clever as Farrington's retort. At this, Farrington told the boys to polish off that and have another. Just as they were naming their poisons, who should come in but Higgins? Of course, he had to join in with the others. The men asked him to give his version of it, and he did so with great vivacity, for the sight of five small hot whiskies was very exhilarating. Everyone roared laughing when he showed the way in which Mr. Alane shook his fist in Farrington's face. Then he imitated Farrington, saying, And here was my nabs, as cool as you please. <laughs> 
while Farrington looked at the company out of his heavy, dirty eyes, smiling and at times drawing forth stray drops of liquor from his moustache with the aid of his lower lip. When that round was over, there was a pause. O'Halloran had money, but neither of the other two seemed to have any, so the whole party left the shop somewhat regretfully. At the corner of Duke Street, Higgins and Nosy Flynn bevelled off to the left, while the other three turned back towards the city. Rain was drizzling down on the cold streets, and when they reached the ballast office, Farrington suggested the Scotch house. The bar was full of men and loud with the noise of tongues and glasses. The three men pushed past the whining match sellers at the door and formed a little party at the corner of the counter. They began to exchange stories. Leonard introduced them to a young fellow named Weathers who was performing at the Tivoli as an acrobat and knockabout artiste. Farrington stood a drink all round. Weathers said he would take a small Irish and a Polonaris. Farrington, who had definite notions of what was what, asked the boys would they have an Apollinaris too, but the boys told Tim to make theirs hot. The talk became theatrical. O'Halloran stood around and then Farrington stood another round, Weathers protesting that the hospitality was too Irish. He promised to get them in behind the scenes and introduce them to some nice girls. O'Halloran said that he and Leonard would go, but that Farrington wouldn't go because he was a married man and Farrington's heavy, dirty eyes leered at the company in token that he understood he was being chaffed. Weathers made them all have just one little tincture at his expense and promised to meet them later on at Mulligan's in Poolbeg Street. When the Scotch house closed, they went round to Mulligan's. They went into the parlour at the back and O'Halloran ordered small hot specials all round. They were all beginning to feel mellow. Farrington was just standing another round when Weathers came back, much to Farrington's relief, he drank a glass of bitter this time. Funds were running low, but they had enough to keep them going. Presently, two young women with big hats and a young man in a check suit came in and sat at a table close by. Weathers saluted them and told the company that they were out of the Tivoli. Farrington's eyes wandered at every moment in the direction of one of the young women. There was something striking in her appearance an immense scarf of peacock blue muslin was wound round her hat and knotted in a great bow under her chin, and she wore bright yellow gloves reaching to the elbow. Farrington gazed admiringly at the plump arm which she moved very often and with much grace, and when after a little time she answered his gaze, he admired still more her large dark brown eyes. The oblique staring expression in them fascinated him, she glanced at him once or twice, and when the party was leaving the room, she brushed against his chair and said, Oh, pardon! in a London accent. He watched her leave the room in the hope that she would look back at him, but he was disappointed. He cursed his want of money and cursed all the rounds he had stood, particularly all the whiskies and Apollinaris which he had stood to Weathers. If there was one thing that he hated, it was a sponge. He was so angry that he lost count of the conversation of his friends. When Paddy Leonard called him, he found that they were talking about feats of strength. Weathers was showing his biceps muscle to the company and boasting so much that the other two had called on Farrington to uphold the national honour. Farrington pulled up his sleeve accordingly and showed his biceps muscle to the company. The two arms were examined and compared and finally it was agreed to have a trial of strength. 
the table was cleared and the two men rested their elbows on it, clasping hands. When Paddy Leonard said, Go! Each was to try to bring down the other's hand onto the table. Parrington looked very serious and determined. The trial began. After about 30 seconds, Weathers brought his opponent's hand slowly down onto the table. Parrington's dark, wine-coloured face flushed darker still with anger and humiliation at having been defeated by such a stripling. Uh, you're not to put the weight of your body behind it. Play fair, he said. Who's not playing fair? Said the other. Well, come on again. The two best out of three. The trial began again. The veins stood out on Farrington's forehead and the pallor of Weathers' complexion changed to peony. Their hands and arms trembled under the stress. After a long struggle, Weathers again brought his opponent's hand slowly onto the table. There was a murmur of applause from the spectators. The curate, who was standing beside the table, nodded his red head towards the victor and said with loutish familiarity, uh, That's the knack. What the hell do you know about it? said Farrington fiercely, turning on the man. What do you put me in your gap for? said O'Halloran, observing the violent expression of Farrington's face. Phony up, boys. We'll have just one little smahan more and then we'll be off. A very sullen-faced man stood at the corner of O'Connell Bridge, waiting for the little Sandyman tram to take him home. He was full of smouldering anger and revengefulness. He felt humiliated and discontented. He did not even feel drunk, and he had only twopence in his pocket. He cursed everything. He had done for himself in the office, pawned his watch, spent all his money, and he had not even got drunk. He began to feel thirsty again, and he longed to be back again in the hot, reeking public house. He had lost his reputation as a strong man, having been defeated twice by a mere boy. His heart swelled with fury, and when he thought of the woman in the big hat who had brushed against him and said, Pardon? His fury nearly choked him. His tram let him down at Shelburne Road, and he steered his great body along in the shadow of the wall of the barracks. He loathed returning to his home. When he went in by the side door, he found the kitchen empty and the kitchen fire nearly out. He bawled upstairs. Ada! Ada! His wife was a little sharp-faced woman who bullied her husband when he was sober and was bullied by him when he was drunk. They had five children. A little boy came running down the stairs. Who is that? said the man, peering through the darkness. Me, Pa. Well, who are you? Charlie? No, Pa. Tom. Where's your mother? She's out of the chapel. Oh, that's right. Did she think of leaving any dinner for me? Yes, Pa. I'm... Light the lamp. What do you mean by having the place in darkness? Are the other children in bed? The man sat down heavily on one of the chairs while the little boy lit the lamp. He began to mimic his son's flat accent, saying half to himself, At the chapel, at the chapel, if you please. When the lamp was lit, he banged his fist on the table and shouted, What's for me, dinner? I'm going to cook it, Pa, said the little boy. The man jumped up furiously and pointed to the fire. On that fire? You let the fire out? By God, I'll teach you to do that again. He took a step to the door and seized the walking stick, which was standing behind it. I'll teach you to let the fire out, he said, rolling up his sleeve in order to give his arm free play. 
The little boy cried and ran whimpering round the table, but the man followed him and caught him by the coat. The little boy looked about him wildly, but seeing no way of escape, fell upon his knees. Now you'll let the fire out the next time, said the man, striking at him viciously with a stick. Take that, you little whimp! The boy uttered a squeal of pain as the stick cut his thigh. He clasped his hands together in the air, and his voice shook with fright. Oh, pa, He cried. Don't beat me, Pa, and I'll, I'll say a Hail Mary for you. I'll say a Hail Mary for you, Pa, if you don't beat me. I'll say a Hail Mary. We've been listening to Counterparts by James Joyce. Brendan Caldwell played Farrington and Mr Elaine was played by Jim Reed. The Chief Clerk was Peter Dix and Miss Parker was played by Colette Proctor. Counterparts by James Joyce was narrated by Connor Farrington and the producer was William Stiles. And if you'd like to hear these and previous stories from Dubliners or you just can't wait to binge on the box set, you can listen to and download all 15 stories and more besides on rte.ie slash Ulysses or on the Drama on One website. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash Drama on One. Drama on One.